Anyone that needs a study sheet. Okay, very good. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1. So our first question, now there was a lot of things written on the note card. <laughs> I really just put the question out there and then we'll kind of address the thing. So if you ask the question, we'll get to it. <laughs> so our first question is, why is the book of Proverbs written partly to give subtlety to the simple? Why was Proverbs written in part to give subtlety to the simple, and, and something that will go along with that, that, that kind of, just so you know, kind of the heart of the question is, isn't subtlety a bad thing? And isn't the simple man contrasted with a prudent man throughout Scripture? Why would, it, why would we want to give something like subtlety to a simple person? And that's, uh, that's kind of the, the heart of the question. So let's go ahead and jump in. The context of Proverbs, when we, when we read the beginning of Proverbs here, we see this is how the book, in fact, starts, is with telling you why these were even written in the first place. That's, that's these opening verses of the book of Proverbs. So we'll start, uh, we'll go verses 1 through 4. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice and judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. So the first four verses here of Proverbs, Proverbs verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, basically just addresses, these in fact are the Proverbs of Solomon. Very clear who this is, the son of David, the king of Israel. There is no other Solomon. We can't mistake who wrote these things. Verse 2, now we get into the purpose of writing it. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding. So it says that we're to, the reason that, that these are written, what we should be gleaning out of the Proverbs when we go through the Proverbs, it's not, oh, I just really like this verse. Or uh, that we just, we memorize it because that verse touched us. These were written for a reason. There's things that should be working themselves into us as we meditate on and think on the Proverbs. So it's to know wisdom and instruction and to perceive words of understanding. So wisdom... Wisdom is basic, to boil it down into something really simple, is it's knowing what to do in all circumstances. That's wisdom. You take knowledge, you take the things that you know, and wisdom then tells you what is the right thing to actually do with all the things that you know. So wisdom is just knowing what to do in all circumstances. And instruction is how to then act in all circumstances. That's instruction. Because... Some people are just not really good at following instructions. But it's how you should be acting. It's what you should be doing. And it's to know these things. It's to know wisdom and instruction and then to perceive the words of understanding. Basically, words of understanding, it means apprehending the real state of things, the actual state of the way things are. Right? Because if... I mean, I don't know if you guys live in the same world that I do, but trying to find out the real state of things can get pretty muddy out there. And there are people that believe just flat-out lies because in their heart, it's what they want to believe. And no matter what evidence or what reality is actually taking place, they don't want any part of it. I mean, I, I don't know. I listen to too many people and I hear these, these people that, that no matter what is said and no matter how logical something is brought against what they believe, they completely set it aside 
to continue believing their lie. Because they can't perceive words of understanding. We're losing our ability to understand the real state of things and just even understand each other without it turning into this huge argument and people screaming and fighting. The book of Proverbs helps you to perceive the words of understanding. And also, uh, this is, just so you know, this is head information. This is, right? To know it and to perceive it. This is stuff in the head. These are things that we bring in that we know in our minds. And then next, verse 3. It's to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. So it's one thing to know it, right? To know it, to perceive it in your head. It's another to then receive it. Actually receive it in who you are. So again, wisdom, knowing what's due in all circumstances. Justice, giving everyone what is due. Genuinely due. That's justice. Judgment, comparing ideas to ascertain the truth. Right? This is Proverbs. I feel like, man, this book hits so home today because our world is so the polar opposite of what this very book is trying to do. Judgment, comparing ideas to ascertain truth, not just making up your mind and shutting out anyone that doesn't agree with you. That's not good judgment. That's terrible judgment. Because then what you fall on is your own emotion and what you feel and what you want to believe. But that's not what this book was for. It's to receive judgment and equity. So don't get too hung up on justice giving everyone what is due. Equity means impartial distribution of justice. Impartial. That's equity. It's equal across the board. No matter who someone is, no matter how much you might like this person over that person, the book of Proverbs and the heartbeat of God is wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. That it's an equal distribution of it. So this, what we have here, is heart information. This is heart information. Remember, we're going through what is the purpose of the book of Proverbs. Why was it even written? Because then in the next verse here, we're going to find the, the, the part in question. So it's also to give subtlety to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young man. Subtlety. Now look at this definition because, you know, I'll be honest, I kind of felt the same way when the question comes across and I'm like, huh, that does seem odd. Why would we want that? We, we always associate subtlety with one key person. Who is it? Satan, right? In the garden. He was more subtle than any beast of the field. So you do think, well, why would you want a simple person to be subtle? But here's what subtlety actually means. It means refinement. It means extreme discernment or perception. Or it can mean, as it does with the serpent, slyness. Right? Like craftiness. Saying half-truths to get your way. Being very subtle. Very sly about things. So it can also mean that, but it's not its only definition. That's not the only thing that subtlety means. So to give subtlety to the simple, and then we have knowledge and discretion to the young man. Knowledge is a clear and certain perception of that which exists. Clear and certain to have knowledge about it. And then discretion is just discernment, which enables a person to judge critically of what is correct and proper, united with caution. That would be discretion. So what we have here, the first, you know, verse 2, we have head information, 
right? To know and to perceive wisdom, instruction, and words of understanding. Then we have heart information to receive wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. And then here what we have is information in action. This information in action. These are the things that God says, know them. Once you know them, receive them. Because they're not the same thing. Knowing and receiving are not the same things. Right? If you read John chapter 1, receive plus believe equals Son of God. Us, sons of God. You've got to receive it and believe it. Right? Not just believe it in your head. You have to take it and then receive it to become God's child. This is how the Proverbs are written. So receive it, believe it, and then do something about it. So this is the introduction here to the book of Proverbs. So your next point here on the paper, subtlety typically has a negative connotation and a simple man is contrasted contrasted with a prudent man. So why would God want to give a simple man subtlety? Well, first off, not every, every is your blank, not every use of subtlety is negative. Keep your place in Proverbs, but turn back to 2 Kings chapter 10. 2 Kings 10. Not every use. In general, that's the way we take it. That's the way we use it. I would think most generally, about none of us in here would use the word subtle or subtlety and have a positive connotation to it and be trying to compliment someone for their refinement or their extreme discernment, right? Probably not. We, we would not use it that way. However, that is what it can in fact mean, and we're not dealing with what we would say. We're dealing with what God said, not what we say. So 2 Kings 10, I just want you to see, here's one example where subtlety was in fact used, not in a negative way, because what happens here actually pleases the Lord, and we'll read that. So 2 Kings 10, verses 18 through 28, it says, And Jehu gathered all the people together and said unto them, Ahab, who was the king of Israel, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. Oh, the king Ahab, he, he only served Baal a little bit. I'm going to serve him a whole lot more. This is what he says. Now therefore, call unto me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, and all his priests. Let none be wanting. For I have a great sacrifice to do to Baal. Whosoever shall be wanting, he shall not live. But Jehu did it in what? Subtlety. Here was the subtlety to the intent that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. So what we're dealing with here is he's saying, hey, this king, he only served Baal a little bit. I'm going to go over the top. Make sure you get all the worshipers, all the priests. You get everybody and don't let anybody that's a worshiper or a priest, don't let any of them be wanting. Don't let any of them be sitting at home when this goes down because I got this huge sacrifice I'm going to do. But in fact, he's not a worshiper of Baal. And that's not what he's going to do. In subtlety, he's doing this because he plans on ending Baal worship in Israel. Which we'll read. Verse 20. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. And they proclaimed it. And Jehu 
sent throughout, uh, sent through all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left that came not. And they came into the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was full from one end to another. And he said unto him that was, that was over the vestry, Bring forth vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. And he brought them forth vestments. And Jehu went, and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, into the house of Baal, and said unto the worshipers of Baal, Search and look that there be with you none of the servants of the Lord, but the worshipers of Baal only. See what they're doing here? It's almost like a sheep and the goats kind of a situation. Verse 24. And when they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed four score men without and said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, he that letteth him go, his life shall be for the life of him. If you let anybody out of here that's a worshiper of Baal, I'm taking yours. He made it pretty serious. Verse 25, And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and slay them. Let none come forth. And they smote them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the captains cast them out and went to the city of the house of Baal. And they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal and burned them. And they break down the image of Baal and break down the house of Baal and made it a draught, uh, a draught house unto this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. And he did it through what? Subtlety. And you may think, well, is that what God wanted though? Is that how God wanted to deal with it? Look at verse 30. And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. In subtlety, he actually had the discernment to know how he was going to end Baal worship in Israel, at least at this time. Because if we study history, we know, unfortunately, it came back. But Jehu, in his subtlety, eradicated it. Eradicated it for a time. That's hard to say. So, not every use is negative. I'll give you most uses for sure. However, not every time... And when we get here, go ahead and turn back to Proverbs. When we get into Proverbs, we're not dealing with a negative context here. We're dealing with a positive context. So remember, subtlety also means refinement and extreme discernment and perception. So basically to answer this question, why would this be to make the simple man, uh, why would we want to give the simple man subtlety? God, through Proverbs, seeks to make the simple man a prudent man. That's why we see the contrast. And that's, we're going to look at a few of these here. We're not going to look at every single one there in Proverbs. But that's what God's trying to do through a book like Proverbs is take the simple man and turn him into a prudent man through the power of his word through the Proverbs. That's why this would be written to give subtlety to the simple. Because he wants the simple to, to have refinement discernment, and perception. The simple need that. So let's look at Proverbs 1, 
Verses 22 and 23. Now think about that. God wants to make the simple man a prudent man. And now look at the contrast. And now as you read these verses, I hope that they will begin to make more sense. Proverbs 1, 22 and 23. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. You simple person, listen to me. Turn to me. That's what he's trying to do in Proverbs. The simple need to be prudent. The simple need to be wise. Because they are not these things. But that's what God wants for his followers. Go ahead and turn to Proverbs 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Verse 1, just to set the context of who's speaking. Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? Jump down to verse 4. Unto you, O men, I call wisdom and understanding. They're speaking. They're the, the first person here. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. O ye simple, understand wisdom, and ye fools, be ye of an understanding heart. Hear, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. This is what Proverbs is trying to do. This is why it's trying to give subtlety to the simple. Turn to chapter 14. Proverbs 14. Starting in verse 15. or We're going to just look at 15 and 18. It says, The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his going. Look at verse 18. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. So, think about this. If you are a simple person, I think I, in many ways I am. <laughs> I wasn't looking for volunteers to raise their hand. <laughs> um, the simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his going. You should stop and ask yourself, this is what Proverbs is trying to do. Do I just believe everything everyone tells me, or do I exercise discernment and judgment and think, maybe I need to hear the other side of this thing. Because if you just believe what people tell you at face value, and you don't do your due diligence, you're a simple person. But there's good news. God wants to turn you into a prudent person. And this is one avenue where he's telling you, don't just believe every word. Look well after your goings. See what's going on. See what the real story is. The simple inherit folly. Do you find that your life is full of folly? Because the prudent man is crowned with knowledge. This is just a, this is a test. This is advice. These are the proverbs. If you're simple, here's how to not be. That's what he's doing here. Giving subtlety, refinement, discernment to the simple. And then let's turn to chapter 21. This is the last one we're going to look at. Proverbs 21.11. You know, there are other references too that I didn't end up putting on here. If you just look up simple um, you can find more. Uh, the proverb, or I'm sorry, the Psalms, there's uh, several mentions there too where it's the same kind of a thing. Where it's basically God's talking to the simple and he's telling them, I want you. I want to make you knowledgeable. I want to make you wise, but you're simple. Turn to me. Turn to me. So Proverbs 11, 21, verse 11. When the scorner is punished, the simple is made wise. And when the wise is instructed, he receiveth knowledge. 
See, the simple can look at a scorner being punished, and that starts to make them wise to, I was just like that person. I don't want to be like that person. And then once they're wise, what, to that situation, what do they then receive? It's in the verse. I'm not, it's not a trick. Go ahead. Did you forget what verse we just read? There we go. <laughs> Knowledge. It really wasn't a trick. <laughs> Do you guys have disciplers that try and fool you with the like blanks or something? You're very quiet. Very like, yeah, knowledge. It's okay. Belt it out. Knowledge. Right? They see a scorner get reproved. That makes them wise to the fact that I don't want to get that. So what do they then receive? Knowledge on how to not get that reproof. This is how it works. This is Proverbs. This is what Proverbs is trying to do. Take the simple, make them prudent, make them wise, make them understanding. So that is why the book of Proverbs is written partly to give subtlety to the simple. Any questions? I didn't think I'd get any in here tonight. Are you guys tired? I know it's not too warm in here. Well, why do I see a bunch of dead blank stares back in, at me then? <laughs> when things make sense to me, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And you guys are like... <laughs> Okay, nothing else? We're going to move on. Okay. Now this one I really hope you're awake for. Because this is very personal. Because this question is very personal. And it's a very good question. And honestly, I received it a long time ago, but I thought this is the perfect question to end Q&A on. I did just now. I just told you the Q&A is ending. Yeah, no, just such a harsh... yeah, well, you know, it's like I'm like, I'm under the Band-Aid theory. You don't slowly peel off a Band-Aid. You just yank it off of there. You let it hurt for a minute and then everyone's okay. So I think this is a beautiful question to end on because we need to stop and think about it. And we need to think about the answer to this question. So why did Jesus cry with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let's turn to Matthew 27. Why did Jesus cry this? Why did the man God, the God man, Jesus Christ, why did he cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why would he say that? Well, let's look at the scenario. This is why when I was praying, I know, I know you guys have been through this. I know you've been through it however many times. Let's try and see it maybe like you've never seen it before. And if you have seen it this way, see what God wants to give you tonight. Matthew 27, 35-46 And they crucified Him and parted His garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted My garments among them, and upon My vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched, uh, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, 
wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him, with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over, over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So Matthew 27, this is all on your paper here. Matthew 27, what we just read when Jesus cried this out, this is what takes, takes place leading up to it. Jesus was nailed to the cross. His clothes were taken like souvenirs. He was punished with common thieves. He was mocked. He was rejected. And then he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you see all these things that just took place, right? Nailed to a cross. His clothes are taken like souvenirs. He's punished with common thieves. He's mocked. He's rejected. It was not for any of those reasons. Do you know how many martyrs have marched to their death with smiles on their faces that were tortured, that were beaten, that were stabbed, that were cut in half with a saw? And they sang. They sang God's praises. They preached to the people that were doing it. It was not for any of those reasons. And it's heretical to say otherwise. Jesus, the Son of God, did not cry out, why have you forsaken me? Because he was in pain or uncomfortable or emotionally distraught. That is not why Jesus cried these things out. And it's satanic to say that being nailed to a cross, being mocked and rejected is why he felt that God had forsaken him. Because that's not the truth. That's not why he cried it out. Many believers throughout history have met similar fates and they never said this. Never. They watched their kids be murdered in front of them if they would just recant, and they wouldn't. And they never said this. And you think Jesus Christ said this because he was pinned to a cross because he was in pain? No. No. Here's what took place. Jesus, this is on your paper, at this moment, received the full weight of the sin of mankind and took the wrath of of God upon Himself for us. Jesus cried out, Why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time in all of eternity, He felt sin and He felt a separation between Him and His Father. And He felt the wrath of Almighty God upon His human flesh. That's what Jesus felt that day. In John, 1 John 2, 1 and 2, it's on your paper. He says, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation. He is the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The people that were mocking Him, 
The people that were saying, you trusted in God, let him save you now. The people walking by saying, oh, this guy that could rebuild the temple in three days, come down off that cross then. He died for them. He died for the ones that spit on him. He died for the ones that beat him, put the crown on his head. He died for every rapist, every murderer, every sociopath, all of them, all of them. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he felt that wrath and that sin. That's the pain that he felt. That's the true pain that he felt. We can barely be bothered to go out of our way for people. And we forget. We forget. He died for the worst of mankind. He died for the worst possible person you can imagine that you can think up in your head right now in any history you know. And everybody's mind goes to Hitler, but there are worse. He died for them too. He died for them too. And he suffered the wrath of God for them too. John 3.36 He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Why doesn't it abide on us anymore? Because he already poured it on our Savior for us. That's why the wrath of God doesn't abide on a believer. It's already been taken. It's already been taken. It's like that cloud looming right over a lost person's head. And the second that they accept Jesus Christ, it's gone forever. But the second they die, it comes crashing down and they get to feel the wrath of God for themselves. And then they understand why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because what's coming is an eternal separation, an eternal forsaking. Romans 5 on your paper. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Because he already took it. We really... It's easy to read this. It's easy to wonder. And it's even, it's even easy in our minds to say it's because he took the wrath of God. But just understand something. You will never have to know it. And you will never have to feel it. And you can never understand what happened to him that day. Unless you're not his. And then I would beg you, you don't want to know. If God in human flesh himself cried out, why have you forsaken me? You don't want to experience that. You don't want it. Your next point, Christ not only took our sin, He became it. He became sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Get right with Him. For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Right? We often think Jesus took our sin. He became it. God made Him sin for us. That we might be made 
it doesn't say righteous. We might be made the righteousness of God. You know what this is? This is another verse on eternal security. What do you think you can do to possibly damage the righteousness of God? Because He didn't give it to you. He made you the righteousness of God. He changed who you are. He made Jesus to be sin. Jesus became the sin for us. Your next point, Christ became the curse. He became the curse for us. Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that he might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law because he became the curse. Again, he didn't just take it, he became it so that we don't ever have to know what it is. And this is the cup Jesus was praying about in Gethsemane, which we looked at last week. When he's, when he's down and he's praying, and he says, if there be any way this cup can pass, let it. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This is the cup. The cup wasn't the cross. The cup wasn't the mocking. The cup wasn't the rejection. It wasn't any of those things. There was none of the physical things that they could do to Jesus. It was knowing that He was going to take on sin, become sin, take the full wrath of God upon Himself. That's the cup that He wanted to pass. That's why when you read in Luke that He was sweating blood, it's because he knew he was taking the wrath of God and the sin of mankind. It wasn't because of the temporary physical pain. It was that cup. So why did he cry that out? It's because he took the wrath of God. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, perhaps the greatest Old Testament prophecy of Jesus. Clearest. Maybe not greatest, but definitely clearest. <clears throat> Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and we shall see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne or carried our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. 
He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, (coughs) he shall see his seed. That's us. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, (coughs) for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide with him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Why did he cry this out? Because he bore our griefs and sorrows. He had to take ours. They weren't his. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Right? It says the chastisement of our peace was on Him. The only way we can have peace with God is because of Him. But there had to be chastisement for us to have that peace with God. And instead of God saying, all right, I'm going to let you suffer for 50 years and then I'll make you my child and then all will be well. We'll have peace. Or if He said, I'm going to make you suffer for one year or five minutes to become my child. The way Jesus suffered though, we don't have to because the chastisement of our peace is on Him. He was cut off out of the land of the living for our transgressions. And it Please the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief, and to offer him for sin. And he did this to make intercession for who? Us or all. All. To make intercession for everyone. He cried it out because it was the wrath of God on him. But not only that, not only that, we've got a very Jewish audience that's at that crucifixion, right? Mainly high priests, right? Priests, Sadducees, Pharisees, all the ones that wanted him dead, you better believe they were there watching it happen. It was their work. It was their handiwork that put him on the cross. You better believe they were there. And what were they very versed at? Of all things they knew, what's the number one thing they knew and they were good at? Scripture. The Bible. Knowing what the Bible said. So not only did he take the wrath of God upon himself and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took that religious crowd and one last time before he died, he said, I'm the guy. I'm him. Go read your Bible. Because he's quoting Psalm 22. Turn to Psalm 22. In one last act of mercy to these people, that, were, that hated him, that rejected him, that did everything they could to see him pinned to a cross. In one last act of mercy, Jesus said, I'm still going to point you 
to your, to your Bible. I'm still going to point you to what was written of me. And if you're not familiar with Psalm 22, buckle up. And bear in mind what we just read in Matthew 27. And if it's not fresh, compare the two in your own time. Look at both of these. Look at the Gospel accounts and look at Psalm 22. Beginning in verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus cries this out to the religious Jew to say, go back to the Psalms. Read it. You'll see it's me. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, hope you're remembering Matthew 27. He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Anybody ever do that? Anybody quote a Bible verse and then forget the context or forget where, you, where it even maybe is in the Bible? Alright, these Pharisees, these priests, they were quoting Psalm 22. And Jesus cried out the first verse as if to say, Go back. You're quoting it right now. Go back. Read the whole thing, not just this. Verse 9, But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped on me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is melted like, like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Is this a prophetic psalm? Is this talking about Jesus Christ? Is there any doubt in your mind? And in that final act of mercy before, because you know what follows right after, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He gave up the ghost and died. So it was right after that. It's his final act of mercy to the people out there that knew their Bible, that should have known it was him. Jesus in his loving kindness pointed people to the truth that he is the Messiah, even as he's dying the very people that hated him, the very people that rejected him, and the very people that pinned him up there. So that also is why he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In an act of love. 
before he gave up the ghost and died. Any questions, comments, anything on this question? Well, I hope that made sense. Hope you guys understand. I don't know if you've ever thought it was because he was just pinned to a cross and it hurt a lot. And there's no way that that's why he would cry that out. There's no way. Because if that's all it was, was physical pain, he would know God had not forsaken him. But for the first time, he had been separated because God's wrath was poured on him because he became sin. So there was a temporary separation between him and God and Jesus felt for the first time in eternity. Not that, right, oh, for the first time in his life. Now that makes it sound like it could be 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. No, the first time in eternity there was a division between him and God, the Father. And that's why he cried that out. I pray we never forget that. I pray we never lose sight of the fact that the wrath of God does not abide on us. Because He took it. Because sin has no dominion. Because He took it. Because we don't have to face the eternal consequences of our sin. Oh, we may have some practical ones. But we don't have to face the eternal consequences of our sin because He became it. On the cross at that moment. Will you bow your heads? Father, these things are too wonderful, too marvelous for us to comprehend. Almighty God created. And that creation turned away from You. We've gone and done everything that's against You. We destroy each other. We destroy ourselves. We destroy the planet that you've given us to live on. So you said, I'm going to go. And I'm going to make it right. I'm going to die for them. And when you showed up, it wasn't just any old death. It was a torturous death. Next to common criminals... You allowed yourself to be beaten, whipped, mocked, rejected to save the very thing that was doing it to you. It's too great for me to understand. But what I know is that you've promised me that I'm yours now. Promise me that I will not come into that condemnation, that I will not see or feel that wrath because you already put it on your son for me. And I believe you, God. Thank you. Thank you is all we can say because there's no way we could ever repay or even come close to starting to repay what you've done. We love you. Pray that this would change us. As Peter said, 
will not be negligent to put you in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, that ye may be established in the present truth that we may know right now the things that we're taking for granted. Oh Lord, change us. As always, we love You. We thank You. We pray these things in Your Son Jesus' name. Amen.